Hello and welcome to St. Pete's Online Worship. My name is Preston and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Pete's and I'm so glad you've joined us today to take some time to hear God's word together with us. September has arrived. Autumn is nearing in on us and it's hard to believe. I can't decide if February feels like yesterday or like 10 years ago. It's this weird time warp we're all in right now, but nevertheless, autumn is here and it's a season of change. The leaves change, the colder weather comes, uh, kids and many of you go back to school. Uh, everything changes in the fall. And at St. Peter's, it's normally a time when we re-enter a more deliberate life together with one another. Many of you would return to a more normal rhythm of coming to Sunday worship and meeting with community group. But this fall, of course, we won't be re-entering life together quite in the way that we normally do every other year. Two weeks ago, Alistair opened up for us Psalm 122, and he talked about it in the context that we find ourselves in the pandemic. He talked about how do we worship together in this time? What does that look like? And if you haven't heard that sermon, I encourage you to go back to it, because today we'll continue that conversation and think more about our community life together in the pandemic beyond our normal Sunday gatherings, because there's so much more to our church life than just those Sunday gatherings. And we'll do this by entering Psalm 133. So I'm going to ask two main questions of the psalm today. What does the psalm tell us about Christian life together? And what does that mean in the middle of a pandemic? Will you pray with me? Living God, we ask you to come now and reveal yourself to us through your holy word. We pray, Lord, as we listen to this psalm and as we seek you in it, that you will come and anoint our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we might hear you afresh, that we might see you, that we might understand how you are calling us to live in community, to live selflessly as part of your body at this time and at this very place in the history of your church. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's hear the words of Psalm 133 one more time. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when the family of God dwells together as one in unity. It's a grand way to begin a reflection on unity, on community. Behold, look, See, I think it's this way because it's no secret. Living in unity is difficult. It's hard and it's amazing and beautiful when people do it well. Psalm 133 is one of the songs of ascents in the book of Psalms. These are 14 psalms which make up a short collection that were used by Jews who went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to gather for annual religious feasts. So we can picture little groups of people living around the Palestinian countryside in towns uh, like Cana and Joppa and Caesarea Philippi, making a trip together towards Jerusalem. I think this song that celebrates community life was chosen because there's nothing like a long journey with others 
to reveal just how difficult community life can be. Have you ever been on a long multi-day road trip with some friends or maybe your family? You have a lot of fun, but after a little bit of time, things start to get difficult. What music do we listen to? When do we stop? What do we eat? We get on each other's nerves after a while. But Psalm 133 orients us by proclaiming the first truth about life together, that it is good. The Hebrew word here is tov, good, right, as it should be. This declaration has Genesis chapter 1 ringing in my ears. It's the same thing God said about creation, that it is good. The light and the land and the seas and the plants and the animals and the birds and mankind, it was all very good in God's eyes. The only thing that was not good in our creation account is that man was alone. Being alone, even in God's amazing world, is not good. So God created again. He created one who was similar to the man, but also very different. He created woman. He created community. And as the story of our human race unfolds in scripture, we witness just how difficult community life together is. The problems start in the garden. Blame, accusation, dodging responsibility. But the problems only get darker east of Eden as the story goes. Rivalry, murder, hate, the abuse of women, all in the opening pages of our human race. Things get so dark so quickly with humans trying to live together in unity that by Genesis chapter 6, the scriptures tell us, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God was grieved at the evil. Pause there for a minute. Don't try to sort it out rationally, what that means. Instead, consider this story. Five chapters before, God created everything and mankind in his image as the pinnacle of his creation and said it was good. God delights in his creation. He rejoices that it is as it should be. But not long after, God is grieved in his heart and experiences the pain of things not being as they should be. The disruption, the mess, the loss. God the Father, in grief, at the very beginning of our story, because brothers and sisters were living in catastrophic disunity. We see in Genesis how God's vision for community goes awry in human history. God doesn't want us to be alone, but he also doesn't want us to live together in evil ways either. Well, what is his vision Psalm 133 tells us it is good and pleasing when we choose this hard road of living together in unity. It's not only good, but it's pleasant, says the psalm. There's pleasure to be found when we are together as one. Enjoyment, delight that you can be a part of. Delight that God created us for. But I think it's easy for all of this to begin to sound really idealistic. Sure, it's a great vision. But is it really possible? 
And what does it look like, especially right now, right here, when gathering together is harder than ever? Psalm 133 helps us by giving us two pictures of what it looks like. Today, I'm only going to focus on the first picture, and it's about oil. Verse 2 says this, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This may sound messy to you, but that's not how the ancients read it. Oil on the head was like perfume in those days, softening the skin, making it glow. It was a rare and pleasurable experience to be anointed with oil, and it illustrates the enjoyment of life together. But this wasn't just any old oil. It's anointing oil, we learn. Anointing the priest of Israel, Aaron, and all of his descendants for their God-given task to represent God to the people and the people to God. Now, I'm a priest these days in the Anglican Church of North America called to serve the church in word and sacrament. But I'm not the only priest in our church community. And I'm not just thinking about Alistair and Lloyd either. I'm thinking about you. The New Testament is very clear. The body of Christ is a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is gathering together different images from Israel's past history and saying, You, church, you are now the locus of God's presence, where God dwells. He dwells in the people. You are a priest, as is your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to tell you two ways that this impacts our community life. The first is about you. When you own your role as a priest in God's family, community opens up like never before. But what does it mean to be a priest? It means meeting with God with confidence. Meeting with God with confidence, knowing that the Lord accepts you into his courtrooms with open arms. It means claiming that authority that you can come before God. Being a priest means offering the word of God and the life of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you to your brothers and sisters. Again, with confidence, knowing that God has sent you to do that. Listen to this. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. God has poured the the anointing oil of his Spirit on you. He's doused you with this gift. It's running down onto your collar. And you can pour that life of the Spirit into others. You don't see as many people these days as you used to, I'm sure. But you can still offer this to the people you do see in person. And the smaller scope in which you now live actually makes this more concrete. It brings into sharper focus the people God has chosen for you to minister to in this very season. Who are these people in your life that you do see? Maybe it's just one or two. Maybe it's more, but maybe not. You are called to bring the presence of God 
to those people. But even for those you don't see, you can always be a priest before God in prayer. You can pray as a priest, and that means that Jesus Christ is praying with you. It means God the Father is listening. It means the Holy Spirit is working in your prayers, doing things. When you pray for your brothers or sisters, whether that's in a community group call or a, or a prayer triad or a Sunday morning meetup or a walk with a friend somewhere in the city, whether on the phone or on Zoom, whatever it is, when you pray for your brothers and sisters, pray as a priest. Pray with confidence that God is listening and joining with you. Pray as if your prayers are echoing in the courtrooms of heaven, because they are. Pray as if the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting with you and joining you in petition to the Father, because he is. Pray with faith. We don't think about this a lot, but Jesus is clear that not all prayers that we pray are the same. It's the prayer prayed in faith, he teaches us in the Gospels, that delivers and heals. Jesus says it only takes the faith of a mustard seed, which is, a, which is small by the standards of seeds, but it does require faith. For me, one thing I do to help me pray with faith is using the gift of my imagination in prayer to help me pray with confidence. By this, I mean using the gift of my mind to picture the unseen realities that are going on around me that God has assured me and you are real and true. Now, I'm not talking about just making things up in my head. That would be fantasy, not imagination. It looks like this. When I pray for my two sons at night, before they sleep, one thing I do is that when I lay my hands on them, I imagine that Jesus is there and he's laying his hands on top of mine. I ask for God's blessing on them, his protection, his power to come over them, to heal them, to strengthen them, to nourish them. And I picture Jesus, how he gathered up and scooped up children in the gospels and blessed them with power. I picture him doing the same thing for my sons and I ask him to do the same things. I ask Jesus to do this, and I can do that with confidence. And in doing so, I act as a priest on behalf of my children. We, we say that Jesus is present with us. We like to say that a lot. So I'm suggesting simply that we pray like it's true. Use the gift of your imagination in prayer. If that seems weird, if that sounds new to you, that's okay. But just try it out. See what it's like. It can be really helpful also in praying for those who aren't physically present. And we know that that is a reality that we're all facing now as well. So first, own your role as a priest. This opens up power in community as we pray over one another and as we offer the life of God to one another with confidence. Well, the second way being a priesthood impacts our life together is about everyone else in the community. Do you see your brothers and your sisters in Christ as priests too? See, they're anointed with the oil of the Spirit. Can you see that oil running down their faces of your brothers and sisters, of your family, of those in your community group, of those in your community and our wider church? 
the oil of his spirit is running down on their collar as well. And seeing one another in that priestly role helps us to listen and respect and love one another. One way we can submit to one another as a holy priesthood is through the practice of confession. Confession is something we do corporately every single week in our service. However, it's an experience of deeper conversion when we have the integrity to come clean to one another and allow a sister or a brother to speak the power of God's grace over us. To be clear, confessing our sins to one another is not a law we must follow, but it is a gift of grace to us as sinners. In his powerful little book on Christian community called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer names the act of confession as a central act in community life that does two things. First, it breaks the power of sin in our lives. And second, it breaks open the doors for us into into community. Confessing our sins, as in the thoughts, words, and deeds that offend God and go against the grain of his kingdom, to a brother or sister breaks the power of self-deception that we can often live in and assures us of God's forgiveness in a way that private confession usually does not. Here's why. When I name my sin out loud to a brother, it's an act of humility. I'm exposing the truth that I prefer to ignore, that I'm a sinner, and I feel the weight of of a cross on my shoulder in a very real way. When I do this, I can no longer save face. I've surrendered the lie that I have it all together when I actually confess to another human being. I can no longer deceive myself or my friends. But what I can do when I do this, now that I've opened up the fact that I'm a sinner and I feel the weight of the cross, is receive grace. I can let go of needing to have it all together and staking my worth on that and instead receive God's grace that says, I want you right as you are. I don't want anything from you. I don't want your goodness. I want you, and I want you alone. I want your heart. And when this voice of grace comes through the presence of another human being who also stands under the cross as a sinner, when this happens, it breaks us open into community because of this, because we know that we're no longer alone. You see, sin isolates us. It isolates you. It draws you away from community. It makes you want to hide. And unfortunately, we Christians often make one another feel like we have to hide our sin, that it's shameful. But as long as we keep sin in darkness, where it thrives, and make others feel like they need to do the same, we will be alone. And this community group, for example... It would only be Preston at his best who would be interacting with and praying with and even studying the Bible with, Derek at his best, or, or Steph at her best. See, the problem of this is that there's a lot more to Preston and that there's a lot more to Derek and then there's a lot more to Steph than just at our best. And I will be lonely. I will be unseen. And I will be unknown. 
if no one knows anything about me more than just my happy face when I'm at my best. But when at least one or two others, it doesn't have to be the whole community, but when one or two close others know me, know me deeper, know more about me, know the rest of me, and can speak the grace of God into those parts of my life, then life together becomes possible. Bonhoeffer describes how confession opens up community like this. Now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He's no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins and in this very act, find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all of his apparent fellowship a sham, but the sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. When sin is exposed before others, two things happen. One, it loses its power, and two, it lets me know I'm no longer alone, but I'm now joined to a community of broken people in the need of grace. And that's the power of the gospel working through community. When was the last time you confessed anything to a brother or a sister in Christ? Out loud, surrendered your pride and named the fact that you're a sinner. If the thought of this is unthinkable to you, well, ask yourself this, why is that the case? Is this because I need others to see me a certain way? If that's the case, you may be more reliant on your own goodness instead of resting in the free gift of God's grace, his unearned, undeserved grace. Well, maybe some of you might say, I don't, I don't know what I would confess to another. I'm an okay person. If this is you, return to the Sermon on the Mount and saturate yourself in this kingdom vision. Now, I'm not saying you always need a laundry list of things to confess to, to another. But when I'm not able personally to find any areas of repentance in my own heart, it's usually because I've been looking around, looking around at others, and seeing how, as the Pharisee, Pharisee says in Luke chapter 18, I'm not like that other person over there, so I may be okay. It's just so easy to do this, isn't it? But when I return my gaze and my focus to Jesus Christ and his kingdom coming, how it's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the best place, I realize just how much more transformative work God wants to do in my life. And I desire this to happen because it's good, because I want to be a part of that sort of life. James, the brother of Jesus, sums up everything that I've been saying about being a community of priests at the end of his epistle. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We must be this holy priesthood, praying over one another, confessing to one another, sharing God's life with one another, 
in a pandemic where dwelling together in physical unity is harder than ever. We need small cells of the church to come together, even if in small groups, threes or fours, or even if it's virtually, to own our priestly role, to serve one another in this way, to share strength when we have it, to receive strength when we need it, to pray for one another and to confess to one another so that we may be healed. This is what brothers and sisters dwelling in unity is like. And I believe that in this pandemic, we have an opportunity to develop in these disciplines and these actions and this role unlike ever before. You see, we feel the loss of gathering. Being together is not taken for granted right now. If it ever was, it's not taken for granted right now. So let's use this time to learn how to strengthen our community by becoming a holy priesthood in our small gatherings. Let's use this challenge to expand our imagination for how we can engage and love our brothers and sisters and the world around us. One caution for you. Don't expect this to be easy. Remember that story of Genesis. Life together has always been hard, and it will be hard. Sometimes you'll feel disappointed, and sometimes people will let you down. Don't be surprised at this. Don't run away from the church when it happens. As Eugene Peterson used to say, the church is made up of sinners, and the worst part is that it's led by sinners too. You will be let down at times. Life together won't be everything you've probably hoped of or dreamed of. So go ahead and release that ideal and let that go. Remember, the difficulty of life together is the very, very reason that Psalm 133 proclaims its goodness and its beauty too, to encourage. Now, the psalm concludes with an audacious claim that also reminds us of why life together is worth pursuing. It says, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When the family of God dwells in unity, when we offer God's life to one another, when we offer one another hope, we enter into a holy space where God has commanded his blessing. His favor, his joy, his delight is there. We enter into life forevermore, or eternal life. This fits with God's picture of new creation in the New Testament. Jesus said, life forevermore looks like a Thanksgiving feast with a cup and a loaf of bread at the center of it. Now, it's okay for us as a community to continue grieving the loss of not gathering altogether, of not gathering around the communion table as we used to. It's okay to grieve not having larger gatherings and, and feasts with friends and times of, of large joy together. But know that life forevermore is not restricted to those places. It's tasted in every single moment that brothers and sisters share and receive God's abundant life together and unity. So if you feel strong today, if you feel the power of God on you today, if you feel at rest in his presence, be a priest and pray for another. Speak life to someone else. If you feel weak today, 
if you're struggling, if you feel empty, reach out to a sister or to a brother and ask for help. Ask for encouragement. Come to them and ask for the gift of God. Know that in Christ, you are a holy priesthood. You are a priest. It is your task, and it's our task together to lean into this and offer the gift of life, receive the gift of life from one another that we have in Jesus Christ.